other of the Gospels as well. But John chapter 18 is where we begin. Also going back to Genesis for a time this morning. title of my message this morning is The Gardens in View, and there is indeed two gardens in view, and as I woke up this morning at 4.40, I had two different types of headaches in view. Was it going to be a tension headache or was it going to be a migraine? And it wasn't, it's not a migraine thus far, so pray for me in that way. Maybe just a tension headache, and we'll see what happens. So pray for me. In chapter 18 of John, we have the beginning of the final section of John's record of the life of Jesus Christ on this earth. Chapter 17 was the last part of his ministry. He gave his farewell address and also the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Now Jesus steps across the Kidron Brook, entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's interesting, when we study the garden, we look at John and we say, where are the details of the other Gospels that they have? For example, uh, let's just read John 18 here, yeah. some of it. And then we're going to go right quick to Mark and look at the details there. John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these, these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, if you go back to Mark, chapter 14. And we'll take a brief stop in Matthew a little later. Not much later, a little later. Mark chapter, that's always an interesting statement when someone who's preaching the word of God says, we're going to look at this later. Say, so how long is this going to last? Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. Gethsemane, once again, look at the details here. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. They came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground 
and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So those are just two accounts of the same event. And if we look at Luke as well, at some point we will, and we'll see some details there. But we notice that John's record is different than the other accounts. What is most notable are his omissions. Particularly striking is the omissions of the agony of the Messiah in Gethsemane. But do not be dismayed. We will look at the other accounts. We will study the Savior in the garden. And we will, Lord willing, have a clearer picture of all that took place. All the details that we need to focus on. These will come out for our growth, encouragement, sanctification, and knowledge. Not only does John omit the suffering of Jesus in the garden but also the betrayal of a a kiss by Judas, with a kiss by Judas, the help by Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross, as well as several cries during the crucifixion. Also, when we look at the other Gospels, we find that Jesus selects Peter, James, and John to go with him as he departed from the others so that he could go and pray. And pray indeed he did. Three times that if it was the Father's will, the cup might pass by him. Matthew and Luke record that Jesus became greatly agitated, sorrowful, and in agony. He declared, my my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke, being a physician who is particularly concerned with the humanity of Christ, as well as his physical suffering, reports that Jesus was in anguish and prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Consider that, just that statement, what Jesus went through in the garden, not even going, not even the cross yet are we looking at, and the agony and the suffering, and consider how we as people can be complainers. John, however, has details that the other Gospels do not. The way Jesus interacted with the soldiers and their response, as Jesus said, I am, and they fell down. And we'll look into why that took place. The soldiers that were there, there were possibly hundreds, even thousands that were there, all to get one man and to prevent an insurrection, so to speak. But these veteran soldiers, scarred men who had killed people before, 
who have been in battle. Jesus says, I am. And they couldn't even stand any longer. They fell to the ground as Jesus would let them know who was in control and who was in charge. As we go further into his arrest and his trial, his conversation with Pilate are details that we find only in John as well. John also makes reference of the frequency that Jesus went to the garden in chapter 18. As we're looking in verse 2, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So as Jesus was going to the garden, he wasn't going to hide. He was going to a very place where he knew that they would come looking for him. Where he would stand there and they would, Judas would betray him. Also, John stresses the majesty and sovereignty of Jesus when the soldiers fell at the I Am proclamation. Why all the differences? Well, if we put them all together, we have quite a picture, do we not? We would expect different parts and events to be told by four eyewitnesses, would we not? So when a critic says, well, there are four Gospels, we say yes and amen. Indeed, there are. And we have a full picture that God has given us. John's account helps us to realize that Jesus was not overtaken by a Roman cohort. Instead, he was acting in obedience to the Father and was exercising his sovereignty over the details of the garden and all things that would lead up to the cross. So we have been given, have been given a full picture of what God intended us to have. I'll ask for the Lord's help this morning. Oh God, I am an empty vessel, I am nothing. Lord, I pray you would use me for your glory to proclaim your word. Give me strength, please. Help me physically, I pray. And let Jesus Christ be glorified in his name. Several points for us this morning. First, we have two occasions. Two occasions. So we've got two occasions. We have two options. We have two outcomes and two offerings. Two occasions, two options, two outcomes and two offerings. Two gardens. Two gardens in view. Main focus on on this verse, in chapter 18, verse 1, will be the garden. John does not use the word Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, use, do not use the word garden. Scholars suggest, and I am in agreement, that it is probable that John is suggesting for us a contrast between the garden of Gethsemane and the garden of Eden. So where we look back and we say, what happened there? And we look here and we say, okay, what happened here? For it was in the Garden of Eden that Adam uh, fell. As it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus triumphed. One garden represented life, but then the fall of man brought only death. Whereas the other garden was meant for death, 
and betrayal and meant for the temptation to go lead the Lord astray if that were even possible. Death was overthrown by the conqueror, indeed, as he would go to the cross. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be turning back there and going back to John a few times. But look at Genesis chapter 3. So we can look at the other garden. Genesis chapter 3. We also look at Genesis chapter 1 at some point. Genesis chapter 2 perhaps. But right here, Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Okay, we have the creation of Adam and Eve, and then enter the serpent, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Be reminded in chapter 2, verse 16, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Okay, verse 1 again, chapter 3. The serpent said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God had said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, for you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A few more verses. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now go down to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we have the account of the garden of Eden in Genesis 3. So if we want to contrast these, A.W. Pink lays it out for us, and I will adapt to this from these two gardens. Consider this, several of these. 
More than several. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. They communicated with the serpent. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam, in Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced in verse 9, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Edom, Adam, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought after God. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the, the sword was sheathed. These contrasts can be very beneficial for us as we begin to enter our study of the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about it. Adam and Eve spoke to Satan in the Garden of Eden, where everything around them was wonderful, perfect, as we would say. Not only we couldn't ask for better circumstances or aesthetics, they were in the best spot you could consider ever being in. Jesus, on the other hand, he devoted his time to the garden in the evening of Gethsemane to pray to his father rather than to converse with the serpent. Adam and Eve did not seek God in prayer. They fled the presence of God. And much consequences came from them. As a result, the fall of man. As a result, death. Jesus, on the other hand, came to the place where he often went to pray to his Father. Those in Adam who stay in Adam shall die. Those in Christ are made alive. Christ will lose none that the Father has given him. Adam and Eve fled from and hid from God in the garden. Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane to pray to seek the Father, to make himself available where Judas would know to find him in order to betray him. Adam and Eve... Their Adam was put into the Garden of Eden by God who created it and gave him a command to keep it in Genesis chapter 2. God created Adam and Eve in a world without sin, without death, perfect world in every way. And Adam and Eve were supposed to serve in a way that God intended them to as vice regents over the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. Yet, Adam, turning from all of this, turning from God, turning inwardly, Adam brazenly rebelled against what God said not to do because he rebelled against God. Some insight from Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, I'm about in the middle of the book. It's an excellent book. I'll focus on what he said here. He's got uh, several things I wrote down or I copied down. Adam and Eve were up against a formidable foe. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made and devotes his life to destruction of all that is good. If he despised God's authority first, he cared even less for Adam's authority in the garden later. He wanted Adam to reject God's authority and thus he urged him to doubt God's word and threat. Pride arose out of Adam's unbelief. The man and the woman, by their subsequent actions, chose to believe a lie over God's revealed truth. Like the devil, Adam in apostasy turned his thoughts away from God to himself and his own glory. In this manner, we see that the apostasies of the devil and Adam bear similarities. Much more we could say on that. But we have two occasions. Two different occasions. Two different gardens. And we have two options. Secondly, two options. The first contrasts we found our overall circumstances of each garden. Second, we find a contrast in the interactions. It's striking to consider that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve spent their time interacting with the serpent. God gave a command what to do, and the serpent came about, and they interacted with the serpent. While in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus spent his time talking to the Father. The need for prayer seemed to be very much on the mind of the Lord as he goes to the place he frequents to pray. And he separates from the majority of the disciples to do so. And he admonishes them to pray as well. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what did they do? They fell asleep. He prays earnestly in this time in the garden, as Luke 22 tells us, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling to the ground. Jesus, a man of prayer, had a life of prayer. So when it became the most intense hour of life, he knew where to go, he knew who to seek, and he knew what to do. Pray. Have communion with God. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, 
We're not seeking God. On the very brink of cosmic treason against God, and at the very door of condemning the whole race of humanity, sinning against God, sinning against what God commanded. When tempted by Satan, they did not pray, they did not seek God, they communed with the serpent. Seemingly oblivious, naive, yet Adam brazenly disobeyed God and sinned against God and fled from God. Jesus, on the other hand, felt the need to pray. The Gospels indeed tell us so. Jesus faced temptation from Satan as well, and he knew the force of it. If anyone knew the force and the temptation of the evil one, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he knew where to turn to the Father. And likewise, he admonishes the disciples to pray so that they would not enter temptation as well. And indeed, that would be our exhortation as well. To what degree was Jesus tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, we can't be sure, but we know he prayed, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me. We know he prayed that. And we'll see more on this in sermons down the road, Lord willing. But the application for us is not in the nature of the temptation, but rather in what Jesus did during the time of temptation. We may, as James Boyce says, we may be tempted to avoid God's work, to attempt to do it the way uh, that God intended it, to do it a different way, or to feel abandoned. Our lesson is Christ's dependence on prayer because he was dependent on God. Questions for us. Do we value prayer? Do we pray earnestly? Or do we dally around with Satan as Adam and Eve did? Or sleep on as the disciples did? Adam and Eve were not prepared. The disciples at this time were not prepared. Jesus shows us how to be prepared. How do we know they were not prepared? Because they fell asleep. The time he said, stay awake, they fell asleep. A good exhortation for us. The time when we need to really be uh, awakened, really be alert in our society is now. Always has been, and even so now, there's no time to, to take a nap. Adam, in his innocence before he fell, chose to disobey God. He was responsible for this choice. And there's also the external instrument used the temptation from the evil one. So we cannot give Satan more credit than he is due in our own lives. We can't say the devil made me do this and do that. No, we have to look at our own heart as well, first and foremost. Thomas Watson said it this way, the devil could not have forced him unless he had given him consent. Satan was only a suitor a suitor to woo, not a king to compel. Consider the subtle attitude from the devil 
all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If Satan could tempt and succeed in such an environment as that, how much more can he continue on and succeed in his schemes today? When we're not paying attention, perhaps. He's a conniving murderer, full of schemes, one who looks to devour his prey. He is the ruler of this world. All of those who are outside of Christ belong to this prince of darkness as he works in them. Think of it this way. If you're not of Christ this morning, if you're not born again, Satan is your father. He owns you in many ways. You're of your father, the devil. If you do not Know Jesus Christ this morning. He is an oppressor. He blinds the minds. He thwarts ministry efforts. He even put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Mark Jones says, no one can accuse the devil of laziness. But are we as Christians easily able to be presented as spiritually lazy. Two gardens in view. Two occasions. Two options. Two outcomes. Two outcomes. The outcome of the first garden came original sin. Two outcomes. One is either in Adam or in the last Adam. One is either still in Adam or you're in Christ. Jesus was betrayed into the hand of sinners. Adam's actions passed sin to all men, making them as well as they would be sinners. Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin And so death spread to all men, original sin. As the New England primer says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Original sin, voluntary act by Adam, and we receive the consequences before we even took action. Born sinners. We don't have to teach someone how to sin. Anyone who has raised children can attest to that. Could say yes and amen to that. Could give testimony to that. Yet while we are not as evil as we could be, Paul says we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's only by God's grace, even before we were Christians, dear Christians, that we did not do far worse than we did by his restraining grace. So let this be a reminder to us when we look at someone who was lost and they were doing horrific things. And we say, oh, that was, that was me, or that could have been me. It's only by the grace of God. I don't do such a thing. And even for the child of God as well, read 1 Corinthians You'll see what we are capable of. Look at your own heart. Verse 
Before the flood, we read in Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, the flood came. What about after the flood? Genesis 8, uh, verse 21. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This speaks of the universality of sin. So there's original sin, and then there's the universality of sin. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, there is total depravity. Thomas Goodwin says of sin's total defilement, it rests not in one member only, but begins at the understanding, eats into the will and affections, soaks through all. Those diseases we account strangest, which seize not on a joint or a member only, but strike rottenness through the whole body. Doesn't Paul say something uh, about this? In Romans 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and a path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ascribing one without Christ. Unable to create spiritual life in ourselves. Totally dependent on God's sovereign grace. But totally responsible to turn to Christ. All who are born are born sinners. Standing guilty before a holy God. Facing his eternal judgment in hell. Unless he grants salvation by his grace. One more quote from Mark Jones. He says, Our natural sinful hearts are many hells where the devil is enthroned until Christ dethrones him. End quote. The only hope for the sinner is found in Christ, which brings us to the Garden of Gethsemane and the outcome of the second garden. One main contrast between Adam and Eve and the Lord Jesus Christ is obvious to us. Adam and Eve fell into sin. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he conquered sin. Now, we got to be careful. Jesus suffered in the garden. In the garden, that's not the atonement or propitiation or expiation. That was not until the cross that he paid for sinners. Some cults would believe that in the Garden of Gethsemane is where the, the punishment and all of that took place. No, it's the cross. Indeed, the Lord suffered in the garden. But he conquered as well in the garden. Adam and Eve fell it seems almost immediately when presented with the temptation. Jesus, on the other hand, wrestled with God the Father in prayer. My Father, he says, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, 
but yours be done. As the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden was in agony, as he was praying, as he was sweating, as drops of blood, as he was falling to the ground, getting up again, falling to the ground, agonizing in prayer, as the disciples were sleeping, he wrestled with the Father and says, My Father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he set his face like a flint still to the cross, considering what was in the cup. I'll read this for us as well from Matthew 26. No need to turn there, verse 39. Read some of this. Uh, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch for me for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He set his face like a flint. How long did it take in the other garden for Adam to fall? An instant. A brief period of time. How long did Jesus pray in the garden? At least one hour, if not three. Significant for us? Absolutely. Perseverance in prayer. Prevailing in prayer when in sorrow or when we are downcast or when we are in temptation or when we are facing something outside of our control or facing something we know we must do. Prevail in prayer. Two gardens in view, two occasions, two options, two outcomes, and two offerings. Two offerings. Consider the contrast, what was given and what was received in the gardens, two of them. A.W. Pink says, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. Genesis 3, 6, again, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That what seemed desirable brought death, sin, and consequences. On the other hand, the cup presented to Christ, representing physical death, spiritual death, and inside the cup, God's wrath and judgment. The cup that Christ received was full of wrath and judgment. Every drop 
brought torment. Yet this cup of death he would drink to the glory of God. And in order that not one drop would fall upon those who the Father gave the Son. Christian, not one drop of that wrath will fall on you because it fell on Christ. Amen indeed. Amen indeed. Practically speaking, which one are you partaking of? The fruit offered by the enemy day in and day out looks good, but take a bite and it brings forth death. Or the cup that God offers the cup that is best because it is directly from his hand. The cup that God offers is, is best for us. James Boyce says, it is always better to have the cup of life from God's hand, no matter what it contains, than anything else, however desirable, from the hand of another. The world, as we see each and every day, has their hands out with things to give us that will destroy us, that look good. The enemy has his hands out, offering us many things, many trinkets, many lures. God has one offer for us, his son, Jesus Christ. Because he drank the cup in the garden. And he, excuse me, he drank the cup at the cross of God's wrath. We don't have to drink of that cup. But if you do not know Christ, you will have that cup poured out upon you. This cup... we could not partake of. Presented to all who would receive him, to those who replace their trust in him, who will believe upon him, turning to him from their sin, those are who the ones will have eternal life. His offer, for those who continue to reject it though, this offer will not always be on the table. So as we step into our study of the garden, we see the contrast first and foremost. Two occasions, two options, two outcomes, and two offerings. Let us pray, and then we will consider these things this morning. Father, Thank you for giving us a understanding, somewhat of an understanding of the contrast of the two gardens, the fruit that was offered, or that was taken, that was not supposed to be taken. And we see the fall of man. And then we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying, Jesus our Lord praying to you, the Father, 
in his humanity looking to you. As darkness surrounded him, as the disciples were lethargic towards him at that point, but he was seeking the face of his father. Oh God, that we would be able to imitate that. With the various things the world seeks to give us or the temptations that are there or God, the things that you say we need to stay away from, Lord. Help us instead to set our face like flint to follow Christ. Continually. Let us reflect upon these things this morning, Lord. And we also ask that if there be anyone in here under the sound of my voice that who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, that you would indeed save their souls. You would, you would show them your grace and your mercy this day. Let them see the wickedness of their hearts. And show them the mercy of giving them a new heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.